from the Society for Cultural Anthropology. This is Anthropod. Resilience is first and foremost a word. And people do really interesting things with words, right? Words are containers. We can put different things within them, and that sometimes the contents shift over time and with usage. They're kind of unwieldy things. So that's how I start. Thank you so much for tuning in to Anthropod. I am Michelle Hakepern, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia. And I am Joyce Rivera-Gonzalez. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Notre Dame, and we are contributing editors at Anthropod. This is the first episode of What Concepts Do, a series in which we explore the effects that concepts have in the world and how anthropology can help us understand where these concepts come from how they are used, and what they achieve in the world. For our first episode, we're exploring the concept of resilience. So, in times of adversity, resilience seems to be everywhere. Individuals, households, businesses, communities, and nations are urged to become resilient, as we have seen time and time again in the midst of a global pandemic. So, we hear about resilient environments, resilient buildings, Resilient communities in the face of natural disasters, resilience in the context of climate change, in the context of trauma and mental health. When did the concept of resilience become so prevalent? And more importantly, in a quote-unquote resilient world, who bears the responsibility of mitigating strife? To help us answer these questions, we had the opportunity to chat with five anthropologists that in some way or another, they've encountered the concept of resilience in their ethnographic work or throughout their lives. In the intro to this episode, you've already heard the first of our speakers. Roberto Barrios is a professor of anthropology and the Dora Samurai Chair of Latin American Studies at the University of New Orleans. Dr. Barrios is joined by... Uh, My name is Jason Kahn's. I am an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. My name is Dr. Andrew Uyong Kim. I am a biological and medical anthropologist. I'm a research fellow at the Massachusetts General Hospital and an honorary lecturer at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. Hi there. My name is Elizabeth Roberts. I'm a medical anthropologist at the University of Michigan. So my name is Cynthia Wesley Eskima. I'm from the Chippewas of Georgian Island First Nation in Southern Central Ontario, Lake Simcoe. I am the Chair for Truth and Reconciliation at Lakehead University, Aurelia and Thunder Bay. I'm also the Chair of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation at the University of Manitoba, Winnipeg. So how are our speakers defining resilience? Who uses the term and in which context have they encountered it? First, Dr. Elizabeth Roberts is approaching the concept from the context of environmental and public health. Her most recent work is exploring the connection between environmental exposures and health inequity in working class neighborhoods in Mexico City. She is the author of God's Laboratory, Assisted Reproduction in the Andes, and this was published by the University of California Press in 2012. 
She's currently finishing a book manuscript on addiction called In Praise of Addiction, Devotion and Defiance in Nakolandia. I think we can come up with lots of ways to define resilience, but one way that I think about it now, it's a concept that social scientists, policy and public health experts are currently deploying to describe the capacity of individuals and communities to recover from various kinds of adversity. And another way that I would say that I define it, it's a concept that describes how to these policymakers, some people and groups seem to not let what's happened to them from the outside get inside them. And then they're trying to kind of turn that into something that can be enumerated or worked on or intervened upon in various ways. Dr. Khans defines resilience from explorations of development in environmental NGOs in Bangladesh, where he's conducted the majority of his anthropological fieldwork. His current research is focusing in part on climate security and resource politics in the southwest Delta region of Bangladesh. This work is part of a book project currently titled Delta Futures, Time, Territory, and Capture on a Climate Frontier. He is also the author of Sensitive Space, Anxious Territory at the India-Bangladesh Border, and this was published in 2016 by the University of Washington Press. A lot of the conversation around resilience is about questions around urban resilience and building back better. The term sort of emerges in a lot of post-disaster contexts often. How do we build back after Sandy in a way that will not just replace what was there, but make New York City more able to sustain future storms? I've seen it deployed quite frequently in the context of education and self-help contexts, right? How do we build more resilient populations who are more willing and able to respond to the challenges of things like increasing heat waves or regular flooding or even something like COVID-19 without allowing those challenges to utterly defeat them emotionally? But what I think it ends up looking like on the ground, at least in the context that I'm familiar with, is more or less the capacity to thrive in a world where prediction um, and prevention are more or less things of the past. And chaos is the norm, um, or at least unpredictability is the norm. Um, and outside help is not something that can be relied on. All right. So it's the capacity for systems to thrive in those kind of emerging futures where we don't know what's going to happen, but we think it's going to be bad. Likewise, Dr. Roberto Barrios approaches the concept of resilience from the field of disaster risk reduction, a context in which he has conducted anthropological fieldwork since 1999. He has conducted research in Central America, in Mexico, in the Caribbean, and the U.S. Midwest and Gulf Coast, where he explores how disaster survivors define what successful or what good recoveries look like. He is the author of Governing Affect, Neoliberalism and Disaster Reconstruction, which was published by University of Nebraska Press in 2017. In its most basic sense, uh, it's used to refer to a community's ability to recover in the aftermath of a shock and even bounce back better, which is an extremely problematic term for anthropologists, right? Because again, it becomes a matter of who defines what the better is. Even in the definition, there's a lot at stake in this definition, right? Because I said a community. Some United Nations agencies would rather use the term system. It is a capacity of a system to receive a shock and recover and perhaps recover even better. One of the problems is when we are talking about community, then we have to think about who are the social actors who are defining where a community begins and ends. Work of people like Kim Fortune have shown that what we call a community might emerge over a disaster process. 
in some fields like community psychology, sometimes people attempt to talk about resilience as the qualities and capacities of a community prior to the shock, that then this community sustains the shock, and that then this community recovers. And those particular perspectives of community resilience are not anthropologically informed because they don't understand how dynamic communities are. And they actually are always in the process of coming into being, right? So in this most basic sense, I understand, rather than how I define it, I understand that it's a word that people use in an attempt to capture the qualities and capacities of a community or a system that allow it to recover from shock, maybe even thrive in its aftermath. So before we dig in, we should remind our listeners that resilience, like many other words, like many other concepts, is not only mobilized by federal agencies or pundits or NGOs. For some of our speakers, resilience is quite personal, and it has shaped not only their research, but really their lives. Dr. Kim is concerned with intergenerational effects of trauma in the context of South African apartheid, and his work has been published in Scientific Reports, Psychological Medicine, and the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. Okay, so why don't you tell me how you came across the concept of resilience? When was the first time you came across it? Yeah, so I guess the study of resilience eventually also became very personal, you know. And I came to this research question because I was really interested in understanding my own personal experience with intergenerational trauma as a grandchild of people who survived Japanese colonialism and as a child of parents who left a very politically tumultuous situation in South Korea, immigrated to the United States, acculturated into a very different context and grew up in the suburban South and had me, (laughs) you know. Dr. Wesley Eskimo has written extensively about overcoming Indigenous trauma, healing, and community development. Her work and influence go beyond academia as she continues to dedicate time and effort to building and facilitating pathways towards truth and reconciliation in Canada. She's done this not only by being an active member of her community, but she also creates opportunities for dialogue and exchange. She's the co-founder of the Canadian Roots Exchange, a youth-led charity with Indigenous-based leadership which not only provides educational and training opportunities for Indigenous youth in Canada, but also brings them together with non-Indigenous youth to facilitate dialogue and envision together what reconciliation in the context of colonized Canada should be. Well, for me, I define resilience as the capacity to continue, even in the face of various trauma and, and unfortunate circumstances. So when I think of my own life, both my parents went to residential school for 20 years between them. And I grew up in a household that had a lot of uh, domestic violence and alcohol and sexual violence, you know, all those things. So coming out of that and leaving home at 16 because of it uh, and just discovered, ah, it's not about me. It's about the environment in which I'm living. So resilience comes out of the fact that we can survive one thing, move into another thing and put the two together and realize, ah, I can do this. I want to thank our speakers for sharing their personal stories with us because it reminds us that when we're talking about resilience, there is necessarily some shock or trauma that needs to be overcome. We can't forget that these shocks are experienced by people and have profound effects on their lives, which you'll get into a little bit later in this episode. Before we continue, let's go back a little bit. Let's try to kind of historicize the word. Where did it come from? And how did it become so pervasive? 
So we know that resilience in the sense that our speakers have been talking about emerged from systems ecology, and it is still widely used when we think about biodiversity, for example. So it allows ecological systems to be flexible and adaptable in the face of change. From there, this notion of flexibility started being adopted by other disciplines, and this began with the field of developmental psychology. Within psychology, the first individual to study the concept of resilience was this developmental psychologist named Norman Garmezi in the 1970s, um, and he was conducting a study to understand differences between children who had mental illness born to women with severe psychopathologies. We see that resilience you know, succumbs to a biomedicalized process, or in other words, the understanding and interpretation of overcoming adversity through the lens of modern day science and medicine. So that's limited to, you know, understanding people's behaviors and health outcomes as a result of discrete individual characteristics, largely related to biology and the individual limited perspectives on the social environment that usually get reduced to you know, very simple variables like social ethnic group or race or rural versus urban. And it's not really attuned to larger social, political, or historical dynamics that structure health inequalities or structure the distribution of violence and the disposition of land, for example, that all contribute to producing poor health. Over time came these further studies on these, you know, discrete, quote, cultural values or reduced ideas of what psychologists consider to be culture that promote resilience among individuals. Especially as anthropologists, of course, we completely reject this idea of these processes of overcoming adversities as completely limited to the individual, especially completely limited to individual characteristics, traits, or states, you know. But unfortunately, we still see this individualization of resilience and the victim blame that comes with that, as well as these moral judgments put on individuals who aren't seen as resilient, i.e. black and brown individuals, low-income individuals, queer individuals, as basically not being good enough to overcome the circumstances they're put into. This idea about individual versus collective resilience, and about limiting resilience to the individual rather than recognizing surrounding social structures, is related to something Dr. Wesley Eskimo shared with us about another mid-20th century psychologist. Abraham Maslow published his influential A Theory of Human Motivation, in 1943 in Psychological Reviews, where he categorized human needs in an attempt to understand what drives human action and behavior. His infamous hierarchy of needs is a pyramid, where basic bodily needs like eating and breathing are at the base, and at the top is self-actualization. The idea is that all humans are trying to meet their physical, social, and psychological needs, striving to reach the top of that pyramid. But Dr. Wesley Eskimo reminds us that it's more complicated than that. Abraham Maslow took the Blackfoot concept from his hierarchy of needs. He took that from the Blackfoot nation. What he did was he individualized it, right? So you're born and you need these basic things and you move to the pinnacle of self-actualization. But that's not what the Blackfoot meant. And that's not what I, you know, I'm talking about. The Blackfoot said, you're already born actualized. You come in with everything you need. And the goal you have is to continue to build and protect and perpetuate your culture and your community. But, you know, you move up that pinnacle to actually be able to reconstitute and to really perpetuate your tribe, your culture, your language, your spiritual practices. 
Whereas Maslow, he didn't quite get it, thought, oh, it was about, you know, actually getting to this place where you self-actualize on your own. You can't self-actualize on your own. Indigenous people self-actualize together. If somebody's mm-hmm. suffering, we all suffer. There's a very different kind of, of an approach. It's the same thing with power, right? The indigenous community sees power as, you may be at the top of the heap, but it's because you have your language or culture your, you know, and your family. You have all, that's what's really important. So the resiliency comes from not from stepping on people to get to the top, but actually bringing them along with you. One of the more notable things about the concept of resilience is that it can really often feel like an empty vessel that can get filled up with whatever meaning is expedient for the moment or is applicable to the current situation. So it can be hard to sort out what are all the different resiliences that are out there. And that may be a better way to think about the concept is more in the plural than in the singular. The word resilience has been popping up for a while now. It's all over the place. It's like self-care and all these words that circulate that especially at the beginning seem like potentially this is a useful word. And then the more you see how it's applied or taken up by policy folks, the less political and the, the more watered down it seems as any kind of approach to doing anything. But I mean, it seems like there could be great and productive work that I'm sure is happening among social workers or various kinds of public policy people about how really they feel like they're deploying the word and what kind of work it could be doing, I suspect a lot of their answers would be, well, it's kind of the best we got. It is intending not to blame people for the situation they find themselves in and to find a certain kind of hope in people who have managed to adapt or become resilient to various kinds of adversity. And even when it seems like policy experts or the public health folks are trying to do a very careful job about not putting resilience on individuals or making it up to us, there kind of just isn't any other way to go with a concept like resilience because there aren't really structures in place to deal with the kind of adversity that people are experiencing because that adversity is caused by the lack of collective structures in the first place. I think it's also important to think about resilience in comparison with related words that I think get thrown around synonymously. There's, of course, resilience, there's coping, there's acquiescence, there's resistance. All of these are somewhat interrelated, but all have very different meanings. And there's a lot of potential political consequences as a result of this conceptual slippage. When I started work on the project that I'm currently working on, on climate change in the Delta region um, in around 2015, uh, resilience was maybe at its sort of peak popularity and development. Then it was sort of the, the new concept that was going to get used and paired with adaptation. Um, and what it really looked like was very much about 
securing individual families against futures of unpredictable chaos, right? So the idea behind it wasn't necessarily that we could address the effects of climate change in the Delta systemically in a way that would allow, say, communities to continue living and doing the kinds of things that they're currently doing, but rather that we could provide a set of tools that would be helpful for individual families to essentially hang on you know, with their bare teeth, essentially, while climate chaos was unfolding around them. Right? So it was very much about what is the sort of small-scale basket of tools that might help people to survive a storm and not have to migrate across the border with India. And oftentimes, that kind of thinking led to projects that look not only really strange in the context of everyday life in the Delta, uh, but also sort of manifestly spoke to this imagination that um, the future is the future is all individuals and that communities have no role to play. I think we can say that the danger is really about normalizing or naturalizing systems of precarity by using resilience as a benchmark as the thing to be changed, as the thing to be improved and intervened on, rather than the unequal distribution of adversity in and of itself. You see that on the ground, it looks very much like coping, right? How do you cope with the fact that your soil is more saline every year, that the sea levels may be rising around you, that the embankments that are meant to protect you from cyclones are weakened, and so on and so forth, right? So it, it ends up in my experience, looking not like a systemic attempt to address the ways that people who have been made vulnerable to particular kinds of problems, but rather just ways to kind of shore up the boundary and help people survive through them as they unfold. From a resilience framework, I think we could say that Yes, these people utilize their cognitive and psychological ability to accept a situation. But at the same time, are these individuals truly resilient to this context or are they just acquiescing to a very negative situation that they might not necessarily have control over because of the deep limitations of the public healthcare system in South Africa? So it can be very difficult to ascribe or label a person or a community's reaction to a negative situation whether in the context of climate change in the Bengal Delta or with cancer patients receiving their diagnoses in South Africa. When we study mental health, we see a lot of researchers coming from this deficit-based model or this damage-centered approach where we're thinking about the negative impacts of adverse situations or trauma or, or social oppression. But of course, that reduces people's experiences to suffering and really doesn't do justice or do a good job of recognizing people's more comprehensive or larger experience in dealing with violence, trauma, and social oppression. This resilience is also not just to current present structures of violence, but it actually accrues over time. Temporality is vital in understanding the different ways that people face adversity, whether this adversity is a difficult diagnosis or the violence of a racist apartheid state which are embodied and inherited for generations to come. 
you know, when I think about resilience in the context of my larger project at intergenerational trauma, where people are continuing to grapple with and make sense of the apartheid transition and the long-term impacts of white supremacy and colonialism in a very new, quote-unquote, democratic South Africa, we think about embodiment that's a continual process that is potentially intergenerational and ancestral. And a lot of people for their entire lives, they've had no choice but to be resilient, really to acquiesce to these historical processes of political violence. For generations of Black South Africans or Asian Americans or communities of color that have continually resisted oppression, what does it mean for us to label someone as not resilient in a particular instance when people have been quote-unquote resilient subjects for generations? To think about resilience is also to speak of trauma. Not only how an individual may respond to often traumatic adverse processes, but also how trauma is embodied. But like many of our speakers have already mentioned, efforts in individual resilience building do not necessarily contextualize trauma either. When I think about trauma, I think about you know the work of a psychological anthropologist like Ellen Young who talks about how trauma is not universal, that the trauma is quite subjective, right? And it, it is a fact that what is traumatic to me might not be traumatic to you, and that experience shapes the subject. You might have a person whose life history makes it so that this particular event is highly traumatic, but if they're in an economic position to simply buy a new house and move elsewhere, who makes an assessment of their resilience in that particular moment? When you think about people who hitchhike, experience violence, walk across deserts, run the risk of dying, see friends, be subjected to all kinds of violence, sometimes die, uh, and still manage to go on, right? And they might not have the economic ability to easily purchase a flight or purchase another home, but someone might say, well, that person's highly resilient. I think for me, one of the things that I'm the most interested in is does resilience come along with an assumption of a body that can have boundaries and keep things out? Or is it assuming a permeability that then people that are resilient can adjust to in some way? At the time I really started noticing it, I documented in this article, What Gets Inside, where one of the scientists I was collaborating with in Mexico City, who's originally from Mexico, but was a researcher now in the United States, she started talking about how she wasn't necessarily talking about the kids in this, in the particular study we collaborated on, but just in general, how it seemed like certain kinds of kids are particularly resilient. And um, what she said in particular is it's like they don't somatize what they are living. They don't get it through their body. That really linked up for me to these kinds of things I was trying to think through that are sort of long-term anthropological concerns about the body and boundaries and what gets inside and what stays outside and what we're scared of and what's fine to envelop ourselves in or be enveloped by. There's potential for harm when we try to understand individuals or people's or communities' resilience to individual events, whether that's like a major disaster or a traumatic experience or even a few years of being in an adverse situation. But you know, this exclusive focus on resilience to these momentary short-term events really obscures, I would say, the complex and lasting legacies of systemic marginalization, 
and these larger daily acts of slow violence that we see in the broader context and larger history of these major disasters. So this is a point that I bring up in the Idioms of Resilience piece on, on cancer patients, where we're to a certain degree like forced to talk about these patients as resilient subjects because we did find these instances and processes of resilience that individuals harnered to overcome a very difficult diagnosis and, and illness experience. One of the concerns that came up during our conversations is the vagueness of the concept. The fact that it is often used as an umbrella term or in a very reductionistic way, which also obscures what the concept is actually meant to accomplish. I mean, it feels like the least emic concept of all time in a lot of ways. Anemic perspective, as a reminder, is often what we think about as the insider's perspective. And this would be in opposition to a top-down, generalized view on any given matter. Of course, it's not always that simple in practice, but we'll leave it there for now. I can't think of any context in which this word has particular meaning outside of these fairly technocratic fields in which it's currently being deployed, um, you know, whether mm. it's ecosystem management or urban planning or development or what have you. But it's just flourished all over the place. And there's these vagueish connections between the ways that people talk about them that makes it seem like a cohesive system, but clearly isn't. I think the concept was introduced to me through education. I mean, I don't think as an Indigenous person, you know, living in a community that has been traumatized over the course of the last three or 400 years, we didn't actually talk about resilience any more than when I was growing up, we talked about Indian residential institutions. We didn't talk about that either. The fact that people came out of those places was not a part of the conversation. They were reacting to the circumstances that they had lived in, and their resilience came out of their capacity to keep going. I think we should change the narrative. Gerald Bisner calls it survivance calls it survivance. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call it survivors or survival. And I think that that's true for a lot of Indigenous peoples who have said, well, you know, in spite of all of that, I'm going to do my best to raise lovely children and I'm going to do the best to ensure that we don't only survive, we thrive. You know, we need to, I think, work together to really reject these narratives um, and reject these limiting perspectives on communities of color to assess their ability to overcome adversity. Rejecting these narratives that label people like my family and other communities of color as you know, the suffering subject um, and really trying to be more comprehensive and ethnographically rigorous and political about our lived experience and really define success on our own terms. So what kinds of words do people use when they talk about 
the way that they face adversity or overcome it. So one way to think about it is what Potawatomi scholar Kyle Powers-White calls collective continuance. This idea that despite hundreds of years of colonization and ongoing marginalization, indigenous peoples are still here. This community is still standing in spite of the impacts of this residential institutionalized process that they had gone through. But our speakers also have several examples from their ethnographic fieldwork. In 2019, I was approached with a colleague, Antoinette Jackson from the University of South Florida, to collaborate with engineers and biologists from the University of the Virgin Islands and help them draft the social side of the community disaster, disaster mitigation, and community resilience plan. And in a way, I've just been trying to understand, again, why, why do some people recover faster than others in a variety of ways and try to trace these issues of sometimes structural power relations and also you know, historic marginalization, abandonment of Afro-diasporic peoples. You know, part of the premise of the work is that we were also going to try to have this conversation with Virgin Islanders of a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds, first asking them, have you heard the word resilience being used in disaster context? And what do you think the people who you have heard use that word meant? What did it mean to you? And it's been really interesting. So, for example, in some instances, two of the groups that we have found that are most marginalized in the Virgin Islands culturally are Haitian transnational migrants and Dominican transnational migrants. And it was really interesting that for them, the word was completely novel, whereas people who had a longer history of engagement with institutions and agencies had a greater familiarity with it. When I would ask Haitian interlocutors, well, what, what kind of words would you use? And they would say, well, we use words like bra, to be brave, or courage, to be courageous which could be said to be somewhat individual categories. I think that there's all kinds of related things that working class people in Mexico use to talk about themselves in really positive terms all the time. There isn't a term so much as people telling me we're totally indestructible. We can live through anything. Another way that people talk about their capacity to endure and withstand adversity is often through zombies. Like, the zombies already exist, the world's ended, and we're figuring out how to live in it. But it's not because they're engaged in a nihilism of like, it's all over. It's more like, we've been living this for a long time and we know how to do it. So there's a lot of pride, I would say, involved in it. And, and it, it is highly charged, right? Because. Um... So there, there, there might be people who might say that we should not romanticize uh, the, the ability of the subaltern to suffer, right? that we have to problematize it. That's been the crux of the conversation that I've been having with these engineers, because the engineers have been saying, when, when we talk about Virgin Islanders being individually resilient because they have a history of not being served by their government, a history of marginalization, and they're simply accustomed to this brutality, they're like, we don't want to call that resilience, because then we're going to be normalizing it. We're trying to have a discussion about how to interpret what people who live with intermittent water supplies tell us when they say, what are they saying when they say they have plenty of water? I mean, they, they have much less water than middle-class Americans do, and they're really good at getting by with what they have. But what are the ethics of writing about that is either enough water or not enough water when they're telling us they have enough, but by all kinds of other standards, they don't. And I think the word adaptation and resilience kind of comes up and is bubbling under the surface all the time in those conversations because, you know, the folks that we're talking to are, have really adapted. They're really resilient in the face of scarce and intermittent water supplies. And 
we're about to start working on a paper where we just try to figure out the ethics of how to describe that. And I think resilience might be one of the words that we kind of have to really think through and take apart because I'm kind of loath to have people say like, look at these great resilient people. They're fine with not very much water. At the same time, they're telling us they're fine. So what do we make of it? Who makes the judgment? And maybe we should reserve positive or negative judgment, better yet, problematize or present certain provocation. So in these particular subaltern vernaculars, they speak to or they reflect this history of violence and marginalization, which are nonetheless qualities that are celebrated by the subalterns themselves in terms of the qualities that allow them to continue to survive in tightly hospitable environments. Dr. Jason Kahn's reminds us that humans have always existed in contexts of change and have always found creative ways of navigating change and uncertainty. This is really part of what makes humans humans. So what kinds of actions do we see people taking to be resilient or to overcome adversity, even if they might not call it resilience? So you just mentioned people are already pursuing different or their own options. So what, what kind of things are they doing? People, uh, as we know, um, as anthropologists, exist in contexts of change. So if you're talking about farmers or peasants or smallholders in a place like the Bengal Delta, no one lives in a fixed environment to start with. People are always pursuing adaptive and resilient strategies to try and manage risk of various different kinds. And a lot of the things that people are doing in those contexts look extraordinarily quotidian. They're not fancy uh, multi-story houses that uh, maybe speak in the name of resilience, but don't necessarily situate themselves very well in the landscapes of everyday lives. But they're doing things like reimagining water storage possibilities so that you can continue to irrigate crops during the dry season, reinforcing embankments to prevent them from crumbling in the context of storms, intercropping various different varietals of rice to hedge against different sorts of events, right? I mean, there, there are things that in some sense look fairly boring from the standpoint of, say, a website. But I think we could also think of them as resilient practices that are much more significantly embedded in everyday life in ways that many development projects, not all, but many, often really aren't. Quite frankly, you know, when you begin to look at historically marginalized communities that suffer more from disasters, it's it's not because of failing of their own. It's not because they don't have the proper quality or capacities or proper social networking abilities. You know, one of the things that I that I want to impress upon people when I enter conversations about resilience is to understand that inequity reduction is disaster risk reduction. That the populations that we begin to scratch our heads about their resilience or ability to recover are populations that have uh, histories of being marginalized that happened here in post-Katrina New Orleans. You know, post-Katrina New Orleans is the result of, since the 1960s, of a racially motivated exodus of people, of a systematic underserving of working class, working poor African-Americans, the underfunding of public housing and of public education, of systematic racism, and that the answer to the recovery of the city, a strong component of it should have been not just a narrative, a practice of racial justice, which was completely missing from the recovery plans of the city. So how can we make different knowledge? 
If resilience is deployed in such critical spaces, how can we make sure that we can address these matters in a more holistic way? I think we need to think about who's defining it. What are the aims of the ultimate outcomes? Is it just overcoming an isolated incident or is it um, you know, working towards liberation for a community and overcoming social oppression, health equity, um, so on? All that being said, I don't think a study of resilience is just something that should be thrown out. I think people do exhibit extreme resilience in really difficult circumstances. And I think we need to recognize that resilience is something that's multi-system, multi-scalar. We need to recognize that there are multiple streams of support, multiple streams of coping that people do, and that resilience is something that's a lot more complex. So while I think it's really easy to be suspicious of the word like resilience and where it gets deployed, I think there's, as always, just lots of ethnographic work to do to see how it is being put to use and how people are using it in creative ways. And if it allows people to gather different kinds of funds or make new community forms of infrastructure that could help. But I think the more engaged you are in in collaborations, the more it sort of behooves you to understand and do the work to figure out why certain concepts work and make sense. When we create these forms of knowledge about successful ways of resilience and use that as a way to judge people's abilities or create these workshops and monetize off these workshops to teach people how to overcome these forms of violence, then all these systems eventually just sort of work together to create a false sense of what it means to overcome structures of oppression. I kind of have the sense that maybe the concept of resilience is in flux. I I kind of suspect that emerging out of the pandemic, we might be talking and thinking with a different set of contexts and concepts. I think resilience will remain part of the thinking there. And even if the term doesn't get used, the idea that the role of development is to help to secure people against unpredictable chaos, I think is one that's very much here to stay. And I think we will, even if we stop using the term per se, I think we're going to be living with the concept or at least the intent for a long time. So you want to start or do I start? (laughs) Okay, let's see. So what do you think are the main takeaways? So I think our speakers today gave us a lot to reflect upon when we think about resilience and what it does in the world. When we think about resilience, we're talking about overcoming a shock. But what is that shock? What if the community is consistently overcoming shock after shock after shock in those circumstances? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's one of the issues or one of the ways that we can potentially push back whenever we see this concept being employed is what are we normalizing, right? And something that we've learned is that using this concept in a way that doesn't really consider what this is doing in the world or how it's being employed really runs the risk of normalizing adversity. So instead of identifying a separate problem, and that problem being with the structures that are enabling inequity or oppression, the problem becomes that people don't have resilience, or the solution becomes that people have to be resilient or have to develop resilience. 
I would agree. I think that comes out in a lot of our speakers, especially when Dr. Roberts mentioned that those collective structures are not in place. Right. Dr. Matios also spoke about this problem that there is lacking a political will to mm-hmm. address some of these inequalities that actually cause vulnerabilities to the shops mm-hmm. in the first place. Right. But I think what we can take out of this is when we think through concepts and what they do in the world, aiming for resilient structures is in itself not a bad endeavor, but we do have to consider what we mean and how we're using it. And whether just like Dr. Roberts also reminded us, it may be the best that we have for now. It's true in the sense of it's the best we got because this adversity emerges from issues that are structural, right? It addresses the fact that there aren't any structures in place for people to be able to thrive in their own terms. But I I, I think what it's doing is shifting the responsibility a bit rather than make governments, different agencies responsible for addressing these structures, it kind of becomes the responsibility of an individual or of a community to develop that resilience. And then that goes to that issue of political will. There's no political will. There's no political accountability necessarily. And then it becomes more at whatever scale, at whatever level it is that we're working on. It's kind of up to you to develop that resilience, to be able to cope and to be able to adapt to whatever adversity you're facing. And if you don't, then the lack of resilience was the issue. The issue was not the fact that there are structures in place that are constructing vulnerability, enabling adversity. So when you're talking about the lack of structures, we're talking about oppression, we're talking about racial oppression, we're talking about class oppression, right? and how they enable health inequity, unequal exposure to natural disasters, and how all map onto inequalities. And eventually, it's quite easy to then figure out who are the people that are expected to be resilient. I also think it's really important to think about who is using resilience, just as our speakers reminded us. Resilience seems to be more of a top-down concept. But people in their daily lives might not think about their coping strategies and their daily actions as resilience. But people find ways to survive and even find ways to thrive given their limited resources. These concepts might not translate into the ways that people in their daily lives think about their own actions and coping strategies. But it doesn't always mean we should throw the concept away. Because there is value in having a term to think through the ways that people do manage to survive extreme shocks. At the same time, we do need to recognize that universal concepts don't map out exactly onto local meanings. And I think not only does it not translate Sometimes it might oppose or it might even go against other ways in which people think about their coping with adversity. And I'm thinking here specifically of the example that Dr. Barrios brought in the Virgin Islands. People, at least the ones that were familiar with the concept, actively not wanting to use it because they didn't want to normalize the kind of adversity they were facing. And I'm kind of thinking of another example from my ethnographic work in the context of Puerto Rico. And how after Hurricane Maria, suddenly resilience became such a buzzword 
and it was being used by the former governor. It was being used by all the agencies, all the NGOs. Sometimes a lot of these were foreign NGOs. And people became fed up, really. People were, stop saying I'm Brazilian. I don't know where this word came from, but suddenly it's everywhere. I'm tired of it. We are not resilient. We are fed up. We're resisting colonialism and we're pissed. And there are many words for it, but that's not necessarily something that we want to be celebrating. And resilience seems to almost be a celebration of it. I think that you just brought some really excellent examples of how people resist some of these concepts that come from top down. And it's really important because the examples that our speakers shared and the examples that we had previously in our episode were talking about some of these positive terms that people use to describe the ways that they can survive. But it's just as equally important to recognize people who are labeled as resilient are suffering. And they do resist usage of these terms that are being deployed by NGOs and by the government. I'm really happy you brought that up. Yeah. And I think it's really important to think about how these concepts are ultimately not just academic words or concepts that are being used by development agencies or by governments, but we need to acknowledge if we want to produce knowledge that actually reflects people's lived experience instead of just borrowing concepts that might have either empty meanings or meanings that are resisted or challenged. You just brought up an important point, and I think that our speakers actually have some very specific reflections on how anthropology help us to think through words and concepts like resilience. Firstly, I think the holistic nature of anthropology is really unique to our discipline and provides a lot of different tools to understand a very comprehensive and complex topic. So as someone who is trained in biological anthropology, this very comprehensive toolkit of social theory, of reflexivity, of ethnography, but also quantitative skills allows me a stronger appreciation and understanding of these situated instances and processes of resilience as well as the political and moral dimensions of it. Well, anthropology brings a lot, but that's the difficulty of it. I think anthropology has had better days in terms of how it's valued. You know, in in my own experience, sometimes people with engineering degrees, planning degrees, architecture degrees seem to capture the imagination of policymakers much more. But one of the things that I insist over the course of my own research experiences is that People who get into research and disaster risk reduction and begin to realize that you can have all these ingredients in place. You can have the technological know-how. You can even have all the money in the world. You can have the resources. But ultimately, uh, disaster has a very strong sociopolitical component. And, and flood risk in Houston is a perfect example. All the technology, the knowledge, and the money in the world is there. Uh, the political will to give up the revenue from you know unhinged development uh, within the floodplain that prioritizes the economic gain of construction companies uh, over flood risk reduction is the ultimate problem. In the Virgin Islands, the same thing, probably the most challenging dimension of disaster risk reduction and resilience building, between quotes, uh, is the political dimension at various levels from the federal to the territorial level. And those are human problems. Those are social problems. I think as anthropologists, the thing that we can add to these conversations is to try and really recuperate some of those missing meanings or some of the different ways that resilience is imagined and lived and practiced by the communities that we work with and work within. Um, I think that we can play a role in trying to think away from 
the imagination of a tool to fix impending crisis or impending climate crisis from a top-down perspective and instead ask more questions about how communities articulate their own concerns about risk, um, their own concerns about the future, and what they're actually doing and doing already to address those concerns, and really rethinking the concept from a bottom-up standpoint, which is kind of the domain that anthropology has classically thrived in to start with. So. I think it's really important that we play a role in trying to rethink it from the diverse perspectives in which it's actually lived in the world. I think anthropology, I send a lot of students to anthropology. I tell them, if you want to really understand people, if you really want to understand what's behind, you know, what they're presenting to you, then anthropology gives you the whole picture. You're going to know, you know a whole lot about people from a very holistic standpoint. It was my choice because I work in a community that has had a lot of things happen to it. And I really wanted to understand. And I really wanted to be able to help in a very positive way. So I think it's been a very useful way of approaching the world. Highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Special thanks to Joyce Rivera-Gonzalez, who conceived this series and this episode. This episode on resilience was co-produced and co-created by myself, Michelle Hackhepburn, and by Joyce Rivera-Gonzalez. Our theme song was produced by Pottington Bear. Music throughout this episode was produced by Lobo Loco, God Mode, Balkan Jingles, Another Brick, Anne Joan, Patrick Patricios, and Eric van der Westen all independently produced and available at the Free Music Archive, YouTube Studio, and Mixed Kit. For our show notes, including a list of the articles and books we referenced in this episode, please search for Anthropod on www.coolanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. Until next time. <laughs>